0: collective This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. I have a PhD in criminal justice and 17 years experience in the law enforcement field, and I am happy to share my knowledge with you. Hello class. Is everybody ready for part six, if you can believe that? We're up to part six of the William Bonin case. And this will be the penultimate episode, in case you don't know what that means. That means next to last. So for the very last episode, which I promise I'll have out before Christmas... We're going to talk about psychology because I want to spend a lot of time on the psychology of all of these um, co-defendants. So this episode, we're going to talk about how everybody was caught, what happened to them in jail, and what happened to them in the legal system. I'm sorry that this is out a little bit later than I wanted it to be. To the surprise of probably nobody, I managed to hurt myself somehow. I sprained my back a few days ago lifting something, and I've been kind of miserable and in pain. Not that that's anything new for me, but as far as trigger warnings for this, not really, not so much, I don't think. But if you've made it through all the other graphic details in the previous episodes, you definitely won't have any problems with this one. So when we left off last time, it was June 1980, and Bonin was just about to be caught. The LAPD was telling him and watched as Bonin and Jim Monroe, who'd been staying with him at his mom's house, went out cruising in the death van. On June 3rd, They followed the two of them, Blanen and Monroe, as they went to Long Beach Naval Hospital to see Blanen's dad, who would soon die from complications of a stroke. Then they went to see Vern. Then they went to McDonald's, and one of the surveillance team followed them inside. While they were standing in line in McDonald's, Bonin and one of the undercover cops were chatting about the weather. So that was probably pretty funny. And now my fat ass wants to go to McDonald's. So Bonin had to fly out of town to pick up a truck for his work and then drive it back. When he returned from work on June 9th, he discovered that Monroe, who was staying with him, had stolen his $130 radio and some tools. And he decided to teach him a lesson. He tied Monroe up naked and, according to Monroe, told him, this way I know that you won't tell the police. Meaning, like, about the murders, or actually I should say the murder of Stephen Wells, because this was the one, the last murder that Monroe had participated in. Monroe supposedly panicked and begged Bonin not to kill him. So Bonin then tied a t-shirt around Monroe's neck and reportedly told him, you know I could kill you and you couldn't do nothing about it. Monroe then supposedly cried and begged to be let go. So Bonin untied him. And this is one way that he made sure that his minions wouldn't talk. He would threaten them and told them that he had people all over who would hurt them if they told anybody about the murders. And keep in mind that his accomplices weren't the sharpest tools in the drawer. So when he told them that he had associates, I guess, in part of his um, invisible mafia that he was in, that they tended to believe him. And yeah, he... Even said that he had mafia connections, which is pretty ridiculous because I'm pretty sure that you have to be Italian to be in the mafia. But anyway, like I said, I think most of these kids didn't really know any better. Interestingly, the office manager at his job noted that Bonin was, quote, worried to the point of distress, end quote for the past few days, like as though he sensed that his days were numbered. On June 11th, Bonin and Monroe went to work at Dependable, and when they came home, Monroe borrowed the Chevette and spent the night with his girlfriend. At 8 o'clock, Bonin got into the van, and the detectives followed. He drove around Downey for a while, then took the Santa Ana Freeway to Los Angeles. On Santa Monica Boulevard, according to the police report, he, quote, alighted from his vehicle and approached various lone males that were standing around the corner. He appeared to have conversations with these persons, end quote, then did a U-turn and pulled up to where a kid named Buddy, and I don't know if this is his real name or not, it is in the police report, and I know it sounds like a dog's name, but I think back in those days, people actually were named up. So anyway, he pulls up to this buddy and according to the report, quote, suspect and buddy appeared to have a conversation at which time buddy got into the passenger seat of the van at 1130 p.m. Buddy appeared to be 16 to 17 years old with slim build, long, dark blonde hair. End quote, which, of course, is Bonin's type. The detectives tell them as Bonin backed the van against a building, and they both went into the back of the van. Detective Brooks approached the van and stood at the back doors, trying to somehow either hear or see what was going on. And I think he got his answer a couple minutes later for, according to the report, quote, The van was rocking from side to side. After approximately 10 to 15 minutes, Detective Brooks began to hear moans and screams going on. So I think it's kind of safe to assume what they're doing. The three detectives approached the front and could see inside. Quote, Buddy was nude on his hands and knees. Defendant was nude and had his private parts area up against the buttocks area of Buddy and was moving back and forth. Suspect looked in the area of the detectives and the lights of the police vehicle, end quote. So, quite literally caught with his pants down. The cop said police officers and, according to the report, quote, suspect turned and pushed Buddy forward and flat down onto the floor of the van. Suspect then pulled the curtains closed, end quote. And this made me laugh because it's, uh, you know, like how little kids, they don't have the concept of, they think they're invisible, like they'll hide behind the curtain and they'll be like, you know, you can't see me, I'm not here. It's like Bonin is doing that. He thinks that somehow closing the curtain of the van will make him and his captive invisible. Quote, detectives could hear movement around inside the van and a few seconds later the suspect appeared buttoning up his pants and then opened the driver's side front door and exited the van. Buddy got out and conveniently left the side door open so that the police could see clothes, a fixed blade knife, rope, and a tire iron. They arrested Bonin and told him that he was being detained for investigation of sodomy upon a juvenile and murder. Both Bonin and Buddy were transported to the police department and they interviewed them separately. Detective St. John questioned Bonin. I think we can probably guess what Bonin said he was doing and pat yourself on the back. If you think that he claimed The kid was 18 and they were having consensual sex because that's exactly what he did. Now it's about 4 a.m. And the detectives are like, guess what? You're charged with murder also. Bonin called his attorney, Todd Langren, and he later said, quote, Talking to Todd and having to say 187 broke me, end quote. In case you don't know, 187 broke. Is the California criminal code for murder. So this is the first time he's ever been arrested with murder. Buddy fortunately realized how lucky he was, and the police are like, dude, if we would have been like two minutes more, you probably would have been dead. And interestingly, in what is like a, a crazy coincidence, it was later learned that Buddy, was the nephew of none other than Sharon Tate, who, of course, if you don't know, was a victim of the so-called Manson gang. And that is not the only coincidental tie-in with the Manson family crimes in this case. So the police got to work. They knew that there were over 40, quote, homosexually-oriented murders that had occurred since 1973 And it was like doing a giant jigsaw puzzle. It took them a while to sort out who killed who. And I mentioned Randy Kraft earlier. He wasn't arrested until May 1983. So he still had a little while to go before he was caught. The final tally of who all was killed and by who was born and killed 10 people alone, six with Fern two with Greg Miley, two with Eric, one with Billy Pugh, and one with Jim Monroe. So the detectives then went around questioning his family, friends, work associates, etc., just about anybody who knew Bonham. They got search warrants for his cars, of course, the death van, his house, and his phone records. At this time, he was suspected of killing Steve Wells, Tommy Lundgren, Marcus Grabs, Donald Hyden, James McCabe, Ronald Gatlin, and that's just to start off with. On June 12th, Monroe went to work at the Dependable drive through. He had no idea that any of this had gone on, and when he was sitting in the office, he heard over the radio that Bonin had been arrested and was suspected of being the freeway killer. So I'm guessing after he was done shitting himself, he told his friend Stan, and he's like, oh my God, what do I do? Stan told him to dump the Chevette. Monroe had been borrowing the Chevette that belonged to Bonin. Then he went to Vegas with a girl he met, and then decided to hitchhike around the country I guess, went in doubt, hitchhike around the U.S. Miley was in Houston. He'd gone there right after helping with the murders of McCabe and Miranda. He was scared. Remember, this is the kid with the 56 IQ. Won and had told him his story of the invisible mafia and that he has people that would get him if he told anybody. At this point, nobody knows about Eric yet. Three weeks later, Scott Fraser was arrested for selling narcotics, and on July 18th, detectives St. John and Melaker questioned him in the jail. At first, he played dumb. Then they told him that if he cooperates, he may get out of some trouble. So he changed his tune when they showed him a hand-drawn map. He later told a reporter quote, "The map showed Bonan's house, where I lived, where the liquor store was, where Steve Wood was walking. It just clicked something just clicked. Bonan always liked young guys. he was always going out at night unquote. and sometimes when you see things from a different angle, you know the saying." about can't see the forest for the trees, meaning like you're too close to a situation. And if you back up and have a different view, then sometimes you can realize things. Well, Scott was like right up in the middle of all this. He was too close to Bonin, so he couldn't see the shady activity that he was doing. He claimed that Bonin never told him about the murders, except for, if you remember, when he killed Marcus Grabs. That was one of the first ones. He made up that crazy-ass story about he killed him in self-defense. So Scott told the detectives, okay, get out your pencils. He told them the story about Marcus, and he said that Bonin liked to meet people or met a lot of people at his Scott's apartment, like Greg Miley. And the detectives are like, Who? This was the first they'd heard of Miley. Eric had only been at Scott's a few times, but on those times, he'd been, quote, unquote, obnoxiously drunk, and Bonin was even told not to bring him there anymore. Can you imagine how obnoxious you would have to be to get banned from Scott Fraser's parties? With all this new information, the detectives went about matching dates and victims. Of all the accomplices, the one most up to his eyeballs in this is, of course, Vern. So the police tell him, and it turns out he attempted suicide on July 21st with an overdose of sleeping pills. If you're counting, this would be his fourth attempt, and he was arrested on July 24th. With little prompting, Vern admitted to being present for six murders, and said he knew of another. Out of all of the accomplices, he was the only one who knew that Blanen was the freeway killer before Pew figured it out in the detention center. So Vern goes into his shed and showed the police an address book, and ID cards belonging to Darren Kendrick. Remember, that's the victim that had been killed in Vern's house. Bonin had told him to get rid of this stuff, but Vern held on to it. So, this tells us that Bonin is pretty wily as far as, like, street smarts goes. He knows better than to hold on to shit that belongs to victims, but Vern apparently is the type that likes to keep the trophies. He also showed the police his chlorohydrate. On July 25th, Bonin was charged with the murder of Marcus, and over the next four days, Vern was taken on field trips by the police, which unfortunately proved to be a waste of time and money, pretty much a wild goose chase. They took him to Valencia, which is like 50 miles from Los Angeles, because he thought that Mark Shelton was dumped there. He wasn't. Then they went to Crystal Lake in San Bernardino Mountains. He thought that Sean King was there, and he wasn't. But this was strange because Vern wasn't even at the murder of Sean King. That was Eric. And according to Vern, he said that he was present at the murders, but won and committed them. And he just went along. He was just there for the ride. He said, quote, Bonham would talk to me like a drill sergeant. He had this dominant personality. But he also had a charismatic personality that hooked kids in. And with me, a very passionate lover. Which I think's a little bit too much information. But he's right on about the dominant personality and being charismatic and attracting young men to him. Lots of people said that Vern was, quote, timid, shy, and easily led. And Vern was quoted as saying, we shared a good little nightmare. On July 29th, major news broke in the media and newspapers. Bonin and Verne had been charged with multiple murders in the Freeway Killer cases. Bonin was charged with 14 counts of murder, 11 of robbery, one of sodomy, and one of mayhem. In case you don't know what mayhem is, that would be referring to the um, mutilation of Tommy Lundgren, who he would eventually be acquitted of. Vern was charged with six counts of murder and three of robbery. The cops wanted to charge both of them with all of the 40 that had taken place since 1973, but fortunately, Detective St. John set them straight. Like he said to the news, quote, those 40 or so victims were not all victims of the same killer. That seems pretty much for certain, end quote. Randy Kraft, and I'm not going to get too much into him. I might cover him at a later time if fans are interested. For as many similarities as he had to Bonham, which was driving around California and picking up Young Mills, If you can believe this, he was actually more sadistic and he had a certain signature. What he did was he took the socks. It was usually socks, but I think maybe other times it was other things and stuffed them up the rectum of his victims. That was a very specific signature that he did. Also genital mutilation. And these are two things that as sadistic as he was, Bonin didn't do. After he made these statements, Vern's attorney told him, shut the fuck up, which he did. In Michigan, the police arrested Monroe. Remember, he was from Michigan on July 31st, and he was charged in Los Angeles Municipal Court. Monroe was interviewed by St. John and Kushner, and they're like, What do you know about Bill? And Monroe said, well, he's gay or bisexual. And they're like, no, we we don't care about that shit. What do you know about the victims? He's been charged with 14 counts of murder. Monroe said, quote, Jesus Christ. So it's kind of obvious that he didn't know what his friend Bill had been up to. The detectives are like, cut the bullshit. We know you murdered somebody with Bill. And uh, Monroe said, quote, Bill told me if I say anything, I'd get killed, quote. And they're like, well, he's in custody. He won't bother you. Monroe said, well, he has friends all over. But finally, he's like, give me a cigarette. I'm telling everything. I don't give a shit, end quote. So he did talk to the detectives, but they still felt that he was not being entirely truthful. He pled not guilty to one count of murder, which was Stephen Wells, that was the last victim. But he also claimed that Bonin did everything. On August 8th, Bonin pled not guilty to everything. And a few days later, on August 13th, Vern pled not guilty. These two, Bonin and Vern, faced the death penalty, which at that time California was a death penalty state. So now you have all these jurisdictions fighting over. Who killed who, where, and who's going to prosecute who? Los Angeles County, Orange County, San Bernardino County, Riverside County, and San Diego County. In the end, it would only be L.A. and Orange County who successfully prosecuted people. In the meantime, the authorities were busy gathering physical evidence from Buonin's house, his body, and of course the van. And they made some interesting findings. They matched some blood in the van to Darren Kendrick. They matched some semen from Ronald Gatlin's leg to Bonin. Remember, this was 1980. DNA was still a few years away. So they couldn't do an exact match, but they mainly used the blood type. And besides blood type, there's actually a lot of other things in blood that can help match. They found a nylon rope in the van with bloodstains. The carpet in the van had human bloodstains and also appeared to have been cleaned. There were four areas of blood in Bonin's house. Two hairs from James McCabe, that was the 12-year-old, matched Bonin's pubic hair. And a hair on Gatlin also matched Bonan. Now, hair match is not an absolute science. Not like It's not like DNA. But the phrase they use is, it's consistent with. There was a fiber near Steve Wood's mouth that matched the van's carpet. And fibers on Charles Miranda also matched those from the van. Monsanto, which was the maker of the carpet, confirmed that these fibers were from the model of carpet found in this type of van. They also found fibers on Darren Kendrick from the rug in Vern's house. Vern alerted police to the location of the victim known as John Doe, and they exhumed this kid, and there was still no identity. So he's still known as John Doe. And if Vern hadn't have mentioned him, Probably nobody would have even known about him. Greg Miley was arrested in Houston on August 22nd. And like I said, he, I'd say of all of them, was the most intimidated by Bonin. And we're going to talk about in psychology next time about the hold he had over everybody. And I think this partly explains why all of these people were able to be quiet for this long at first, Miley denied everything, including even knowing Bonin or Scott. And the detectives are like, bullshit. So he eventually started talking. He was flown to California. So now four of the six are in jail. The police don't even know that Eric exists. He's not even on anybody's radar. And Pugh was still out there. They knew that Pew told them that Bonin was the Freeway Killer, but... Anyway, as of yet, they didn't know that he had actually participated in one of these murders. Vern attempted suicide again, I think this is count, or attempt number five, days after his arrest. And he was moved to a protective area in the hospital ward where they checked on him every 30 minutes. I know this is hard to believe, but back then, reporters could actually interview people in jail. So we know Vern liked to run his mouth. And some dude from the OC Register visited Vern on October 15th. Vern had a lot of bullshit to tell. He said he'd been, quote, living in fear for the past year. And he said that the previous year, Bonin's threats about talking were enough to keep him quiet. On the IQ scale, Vern, I'm sure, is a lot higher than Miley, but he also believed Bonin's stories about friends in jail and, um, you know, I have these invisible mafia friends everywhere, and if you talk, they'll get you. On one occasion, Bonin and Vern were accidentally put in the same attorney visiting room, and apparently Vern screamed until the guards quickly removed him. An attorney visiting room, um, it's a little different than regular visiting, which I think at that point or at that place, you had to talk to somebody behind glass. But in an attorney room, you can just sit at the table with somebody. And um, when I went to the jail to talk to people, I was allowed in the attorney room because I had to have them sign a release form you know, to consent to release different things to me. So the uh, type of room that you can have contact with people, as far as I know, I guess it depends on the jail too. It's mainly attorneys and people like me, you know, probation, parole, and cops. While he was in jail, Vern gave his fiancee, Katie, an engagement ring. Interestingly, this ring was paid for by none other than Bonan, and was this to be nice, or um, you know, what was this all about? Remember, Bonan doesn't do anything just to be nice. As a manipulator, whenever he meets somebody, he's like, what can this person do for me? What can I get out of this person? And just about any action he has with anybody is pretty calculated. So what he was trying to do was get Vern to keep his mouth shut. I'm going to bring up the Manson family again, and hopefully you're at least kind of familiar with that case because it was a pretty big deal. Manson, in case you don't remember, was a charismatic cult leader, kind of like Bonin, but a little more culty, I guess. Had more people in his group. And when Manson was in jail or prison or incarcerated, he still had contacts with people on the outside. And he still influenced people both outside of wherever he was and inside. And Bonin did the same thing. Vern turned down a deal of 25 years without parole, in exchange for a guilty plea and testimony against Bonin. That is how afraid of him he was, because for six murders, that is a hell of a deal. But he turned it down, and he told his attorney, quote, I believe I am the victim. I am one of the few that remained alive. Miley, Monroe, and I, and the other guy, end quote. By the other guy, he was referring to Pew. So in October... A van full of seven inmates went from the L.A. jail to the Orange County Jail, and Vern was one of these passengers. The detectives got three of the other inmates to tell them what Vern said, which wasn't really hard because, like I said, we know how much Vern likes to run his mouth. Well, he did talk, but a lot of it was bullshit. He claimed he mostly drove while Bonin killed the victims and then would help dump the bodies. We know that's wrong because we know that he was in the killing up to his eyeballs. He exaggerated Bonin's role and reduced his own. He told them that Bonin stuck a stake up a victim's butthole and it came out of his mouth. That is not even possible. And he also claimed that it was Blannon who drugged and stuck an ice pick in Darren, which is not true. Vern did that. Then he said that they, quote, hung one up by the balls and tortured him to death. End quote. I don't think that you can actually hang somebody up by their balls. It doesn't make any sense. And I think he was just trying to impress these people. I also think he's getting these stories from the same book that Bonin got his homosexual farm bullshit. The inmate said that he was laughing and smiling while telling these stories and also told the detectives that he, quote, didn't feel any badness at all, end quote, meaning no remorse. And they also said that, Vern said that he would not testify because he was afraid that Bonin would have him killed. One inmate said that Vern said that he was talking to reporters in an attempt to portray himself as an unwilling partner and went along with all this out of fear. Maybe the younger ones like Pew and Miley did this, but not Vern. Definitely not him. Actually, when everything's said and done, the detectives got most of the information against Bonin from his good buddy, Vern. Miley pled not guilty to everything, and on December 1st and 2nd, it was the preliminary hearing of Miley in Los Angeles. Again, he helped with McCabe and Miranda. His attorney made the argument that his low IQ of 56 made him unable to comprehend his Miranda rights, and supposedly when he was still in Texas, he talked to the police without an attorney. So I'm certainly not making excuses for him, but the fact that he is that intellectually challenged does make for a decent argument, I think, but it turns out that it doesn't matter. Also, in December, Sean King was finally found in a remote canyon near Ukapa, in San Bernardino County. Actually... It was just his bones scattered in an underbrush. And there was way too little of him there to determine a a cause of death. He ended up being identified by dental records. On Christmas Eve, San Bernardino County sheriffs went and told his mom, Lovita, that they had found him. And interestingly, police were led there by an anonymous tip. So, Whoever that was is anybody's guess. It might have been Eric because he was there when Sean was killed. And as of right now, he's the only one of the gang that's not locked up. So we know he's into scrapbooking with his collection of newspaper articles in the um, glove compartment of the death van. So Bonin kept this, I guess you want to call it a hobby, going by keeping a journal in jail. And in it, he wrote about his crimes, his thoughts, memories, legal and media strategies, all kinds of stuff. And this is so typical Bonin, he doesn't do anything without an ulterior motive. He knew that this diary would be found and read someday, which obviously it was. So his writing, his entries in there were self-serving. Finally the last accomplice, was arrested. In early December, Eric got arrested for intoxication and assaulting a cop, which never goes over well. The detectives questioned him and charged him in the Harry Turner murder, and he was not there for the Harry Turner murder. After he got arrested, one inmate asked Bonin, how many of you are there? So, by the statement, Bonin learned... That the fifth person had been arrested. He thought it was Pew, and he managed to figure out from reading the court documents that it was Pew who squealed. So I guess you could say that Pew was on his shit list. He was shocked when he learned by the news that it was Eric. On December 9th, Eric pled not guilty to his new charges. So, Bonin killed so many people with so many people that everybody's starting to get them confused. For a while, Bonin himself got confused and thought that Eric had been with him when they killed Harry. He got fouls from his attorney. He claimed he didn't recognize the picture of Harry, but he finally recognized the pictures of where they dumped him. Then, He finally remembered it was Pew that helped him with that murder. So Eric was questioned about the murders, and I'm thinking maybe that he was so drunk a lot of these times that he didn't even remember the details. He said he vaguely remembered a night with Bonin where he, quote, may have seen Bonin strangle someone. So whether or not he genuinely doesn't know or he's being evasive is anybody's guess. He was charged with Harry's murder, even though he wasn't there. He was the one who helped kill Sean and Larry. had set up an interview with TV reporter Dave Lopez, and he has this weird agenda. For whatever reason, he wants to save Eric from prosecution, like from everything. He wants him to totally get off scot-free. And he told Dave Lopez that Eric was not guilty of anything and he wasn't ever with him when he committed any murders. Vaughn and Vern have their preliminary hearing on December 11th. It lasted six days, which I've never heard of a preliminary hearing lasting that long. He wrote in his journal that during the hearing, when pictures of the bodies were shown, like for, you know, crime scene photos, autopsy photos, that Vern would laugh. And it's, it's I mean, it's funny because who this is coming from, but apparently this bothered Bonn, and, and he said, quote, he did a lot of laughing. I told him to knock it off and so did his attorney. His attorney said, You're going to have to stop that. And then the most ridiculous sentence. He said, to Vern was and is a game coming from the biggest game player of all who literally thinks that all of this is a game, like a chess game or checkers with each piece being a victim or one of his minions, and he's having fun moving all these pieces around, thinking that he is in control of everybody. And unfortunately, in some ways, he is. In some ways, a lot of ways, he does get his way in things. So even with all six of them in jail, he's still trying to control what happens to the other five. Bonin gets a letter signed by Sean King's mom, begging him to tell her where Sean was. Obviously, this was before they found his body. And it said, quote, I want my baby buried for Christmas. Not surprisingly, it had no effect on Bonin. But what was interesting about this letter, it wasn't written by Sean's mother. It was written by Detective Jigsaw St. John. This is what you would call a serious breach of police ethics. And he really stuck his neck out doing this. Nobody would ever know about it except for Deputy D.A. Norris. And Norris kept this a secret until after St. John died. So he got away with it literally until he died. Bonin wrote in his diary, and this is disgusting, (laughs) It sounds like something from A Bad Harlequin Romance. He said, quote, I honestly love Eric more than anyone I have ever met. He's the closest thing to a perfect lover I've ever come to meet, End quote. I don't think anybody who studied this case or talked to Bonin at any length can figure out what it was about Eric that he just went so much out of his way to protect him. And it's just totally out of character with the way he's ever been with anybody else. Like the other four, he willingly and enthusiastically will throw under the bus. But he's gone to great lengths to keep Eric out of this. On December 16th, Bonin with his attorney sat down with Deputy DA Norris and seven detectives from three counties, including St. John and Kushner. He was told that if he cooperated with them and answered their questions, that they might be able to take the death penalty off the table. So, this resulted in 11 hours worth of taped confessions over a period of three days. And... The only place that I've ever heard any of this, because for whatever reason, it it was kind of kept quiet that this tape existed. There is a show on, it is featured in a somewhat new documentary, and it's called The Freeway Killer, The Lost Confession Tapes. And it is on YouTube, and I believe the ID channel. They only play like snippets of them, and... I can't share any with you because um, copyright. If it was on a news show, I could because news is kind of like free use. But this is not a news channel. It's a, a documentary. But I would definitely recommend it if you're interested because you get to hear in his voice some of what he says went on during his murder spree. He told about the first two murders, Mark Shelton, which was with Vern, and Marcus Grabs, who he committed that one alone. And regarding Steve Wells, which his, was the last murder, he said, quote, When we drove from my house, we went to Vern's house, and I introduced Jim to Vern, and he welcomed Jim in. And his words were basically like, welcome to the Brotherhood or something. It was a real big thing with him. Although me and Vern had a lot of conflicts, Vern wanted to be the dominant factor in the entire thing, and I wouldn't let him for reasons that I felt. If I let somebody else take control, they're going to mess something up, and I wanted to make sure there was no evidence, end quote. And he, he also got in this conversation somewhere that, quote, Verne is not the very passive person he claims to be, end quote. So you can see that one of his earlier strategies was to try to blame all this stuff on Vern, which is absolutely ridiculous, especially when he says about they had conflicts, Verne wanted to be the dominant one. That's laughable. That's absolutely ridiculous because Bonin had such a controlling and powerful personality that he wanted total control over all of his helpers. And that's pretty much how it was. I think that if, I'm going to talk about this more in psychology, I'm going to analyze each of the players in this drama. But I think we probably already know that Vern was the most active and also the person who seemed to get the most enjoyment, like his level of sadism was pretty much up there with Bonans. So he goes on, quote, I did come in contact with youngsters or young people that were looking for something and I suppose I fulfilled what they were looking for and that's why they went along with what happened, end quote. Now here's some more bullshit because, okay, youngsters going with him, they're probably looking for, like, sex, maybe drugs, a good time, but not murder. As we've seen, all of these kids or young men who helped him, with maybe the exception of Vern, had to be kind of roped into the murder part. These kids were definitely not out looking for somebody to commit murder with. So, of course, he throws Pew under the bus again and described him as a real Rufian. Strange word. And of course, continued to insist that Eric was not with him for any of these murders. Then he offers to testify against Vern for a deal. But as we'll see, that's not going to work out. Miley was scheduled for trial in February 1981. And when he went to his preliminary hearing, Transcripts of what happened here and information that came out went public for the first time. So this was the first time the public learned about the details of the so-called freeway killings and they were pretty much disgusted and shocked. So Bonin wrote in his diary, quote, killing became like a compulsion that I just couldn't stop. When I got up tight, I would go out and kill. Sometimes after I killed, I looked for another on my way home. I got so I was always looking for a victim, End quote. If I had to guess, I'd say that that is one of the truer things that he said in relation to the murders. His mom came to visit him and his dad had died in the hospital a couple months ago. And he claimed to her that he was innocent of all this because he supposedly didn't want her to have to deal with all the stuff that was going to come out. So, interestingly, in the L.A. County Jail, there were some famous people in there: Lawrence Bittaker of the um, Toolbox Killers, nineteen seventy-nine, Angelo Buono who was half of the so-called hillside stranglers. And Bittaker was, I guess, kind of Bonin's BFF in jail. They had a lot in common. They were both sadistic sexual serial killers who drove around Southern California in a van looking for victims, hitchhiking. The only difference was Bittaker and his partner Roy Norris were looking for young girls. And of course, Bonin and his friends were looking for young boys. I bet those two exchanged a lot of stories, probably exaggerating a lot. And Bonin gave his friend Larry a candy bar for Christmas. He used his jail contacts to keep tabs on what the other ones, meaning the other, his co-defendants were doing. And if you're wondering How is he doing that in jail? There are actually a lot of quite creative ways that you can communicate with people while you're locked up. Most cells have an air vent in them, and it doesn't take them long before they realize that if if they yell through an air vent, that it can be heard by a certain person in a certain location. So they develop a kind of a telephone game. Like they, they find out, you know, if I stick my head in my vent and I yell, it'll be heard by, you know, Joe up in 2C or whatever. And then they'll somehow pass along the message, hey, um, I want to talk to Miley or Bots or whoever it is. And they'll, like, come to the phone, meaning stick their own head into the vent, and they'll communicate that way. Other things they do is pass messages. Just like in high school, you know how you write those little, well, we did, or I did back in high school. You write up something up on the, the um, note paper. If you were like me, you did it during a class when you're supposed to be paying attention, but it's more fun to write notes to your friends. Then you fold it up into a neat little package. And if you see said friend passing each other in the hall, you, you toss your notes at each other. Well, inmates do stuff like this, too. In in jail, they're called kites. It just It's the same thing. It's a message, a written note. And sometimes they do it this way, which is a little bit amusing. They will use, especially if it's something like this, where there's a number of co-defendants and they know each other, they will use their attorneys as a kind of mail system, like Bornum would write a note. He would give it to his attorney. His attorney was friends with maybe Miley's or Monroe's attorney. He would pass it on, say, "Hey, give this to you know so and so," and he communicated with all of his co-defendants in this way, except for Pew, because remember he is the one that's in the doghouse. Deputy D.A. Stovitz told the news that. Bonin was more dangerous than Manson, and he would know because Stovitz had been on the prosecution team in 1970 that helped to prosecute the Manson, uh, I guess you want to say co-defendants, Manson and his, his little patsies. Deputy Stovitz also made a famous quote, and he said that Bonin was, quote, the most archival person who ever existed, end quote. And considering the people that he's dealt with in the past, that's quite a statement. On January 9th, Bonin had another interview with Dave Lopez, you know, the TV reporter. He'd pretty much given up on any kind of a deal. So he decided that he would tell him stories about the murders. He mentioned all the accomplices, except for Eric, and Dave informed him that Pew had been arrested in Nevada for car theft. And then he asked Bonin what he would be doing if he somehow got let out. Bonin gave a very honest and truthful response to this. He said, quote, I'd still be killing. I couldn't stop killing. It got easier each time, end quote. And I believe that sentence a hundred percent on January tenth, just after midnight, Vern made suicide attempt number six, and this time succeeded. He hung himself with a towel in his cell and was discovered about an hour later. He was also found with an unfinished letter to his fiance that said that he was bothered by all the publicity and information coming out. And the prosecution was really mad because they just lost their most important witness against Bonin. They were also irritated that the jail authorities should have known of Verne's suicidal history and wondered why he wasn't kept safer, like maybe in the hospital wing or possibly on medication or something. So Dave Lopez, who was spending a lot of time with Bonin, told him that Vern had successfully killed himself and cue the violins again because Bonin wrote in his diary, quote, if anyone should feel responsible, it's me. I got him into it, end quote. He also said he was convinced that Vern really wanted to die because he couldn't handle the pressure of his family knowing what was about to come out, and he also thought that his conscience got to him. Whether or not Vern had a conscience is anybody's guess. And about Greg Miley, he wrote, quote, I've ruined his life along with many other lives. Verne's life was ruined to the point of his taking his own life. Yet I wonder if I myself knew what the consequences were. I feel I must be gravely mentally disordered to have not only committed these acts, but to have taken with me so many others, quote. I think that's more self-serving bullshit, but that's just my opinion. So on January 16th, Bonin got what was probably his biggest wish, Besides getting out, the judge dropped all of the charges against Eric because there was no evidence tying him to either Sean King or Larry Sharp. The only person who admitted to knowing him, besides Bonham, was Scott, and he was free by this time. Pugh confessed to helping kill Harry Turner, and somehow the police found another witness. I Had not heard of this person until I came across him. A kid named Ralph. And at the time that this happened, he was 16. Bonin picked him up hitchhiking in July of 1979. Remember, this is like right before he started killing people. So this Ralph stayed with Bonin for a few weeks. And supposedly Bonin threatened him by putting a knife to his throat and saying that he would kill him and leave his body in hills, supposedly just to scare him. And, well, that's what Ralph said. Can't really make any sense out of it, but I think it's safe to say that Ralph ended up being lucky. On January 28th, Billy Pugh was charged, and he was going to be tried as an adult. Bonin wrote in his diary, quote, Pugh knew what was going to happen before we even left to go looking. When he was in juvenile hall, he would force youngsters to suck his dick and he'd fuck them, end quote. He has this thing about the word youngsters. I don't think it's a real common word, but it keeps coming up again and again. It's just weird. I I don't know. One of the many, many weird things about Bill Bonin was his... Continuous use of the word youngsters. During Pew's arraignment, they played a tape of Verne's confession. And the public and media were shocked by what they heard. This caused the newspapers around the United States to use lurid, crazy-ass headlines like Tales of Homosexuality, Demonic Torture. Unfold in California. And one article started off quote, Southern Californians, inured to the horror of mass murder by the likes of Charles Manson, have been shocked anew by a grisly case now snaking its tangled way through the courts. It is called the Freeway Killer Case, and the gruesome details unfolding daily include homosexuality. Black magic and demonic torture of perhaps 44 victims. The media is still on this number of 44, which by now we know is totally untrue. And also, black magic and demonic torture. If you're wondering where they got that from, remember 1980, the so called Satanic Panic started. I think I talked about that in one case or another, where people for some reason thought that there were all these Satanists running around committing crimes and there were cults and they would sacrifice people and it's just absolutely crazy, out of control stuff. And there's absolutely no occult or satanic or any kind of shit like that. Connection to these murders. The only thing in all of this that that's even remotely involved was remember Vern and his um occult shit that he said he was into. He claimed that he slept in a coffin and did black magic and and all kinds of bullshit. But apparently, whatever he said to his lawyers or the cops or whoever planted just just the enough enough of a seed in their mind or somebody's mind to think that this was somehow occult related plus i think it's just human nature when people learn about something so horrible like these tortures and murders that they want to think that there's something else involved that, that explains it like some supernatural business or devil worship or something, because for some reason it makes it a little bit easier to explain why all these youngsters could participate in, in such horrific activities. Now, I mentioned that Bonin paled around with Larry Bittaker, and one day somebody named Barbara Wood came to visit Larry and ended up meeting Bonin at the same time. Bittaker ended up getting the death penalty and was shipped off to San Quentin. So this Barbara Ward then decided that she would start corresponding to and visiting Bonin. It sounds to me like she's one of those serial killer groupies, but it's just my guess. Pew was sentenced to six years for vol- voluntary manslaughter, of which he served for, and he was released in 1985. There's no more information on him, so hopefully he straightened himself out and grew up to be a responsible citizen. I know that's a lot to ask for, but hopefully. Miley and Monroe both got deals for agreeing to testify against Bonin. Miley ended up getting 25 years to life for first-degree murder. Monroe got 15 years to life for second-degree murder. He would later claim, like many people do, that he was somehow tricked into accepting a plea bargain. And if I had a nickel for every time I heard somebody say that... hmm. Bonin is still corresponding with Ellen. And he... So it's it's 1980. I mean, I, yeah. He described her as foxy looking, which nobody says. Probably past 1982. Nobody talks like that. Then he spent time with another newspaper reporter. This will be Tim Alger of the OC Register. And this dude spent like 20 hours interviewing Vaughn. And he wrote a total of three articles this was kind of notable because it was the first expose in the press with Bonin's cooperation. Finally, his attorney was like, S-T-F-U already. In case you don't know, that means shut the fuck up. In May 1981, Bonan proposed to Ellen and Mary, his like old on-off girlfriend, I don't know what what exactly she was, who introduced them was kind of irritated, so it was like this bizarre love triangle, this inmate and two women, and somebody told Ellen, he's charged with 21 murders, you know, like, what are you thinking, and Ellen said, I don't care if he's charged with 50 murders, he hasn't been convicted, and remember, he's innocent until proven otherwise. And interestingly, once Bonan is convicted of all these murders, Ellen conveniently disappears. On June 3rd, he called Ellen. They exchanged, I love yous. Ugh. And Bonan was just elated. They actually set a wedding date for October 16th. And Ellen told Bonin that he had a sexy voice. If you're like, oh, well, he does. Yeah, I heard him. You know, he he does have a sexy voice. That was Dave Jory. Hi, Dave. Bonin, like I said, I can't play anything for you because I don't own any of the sources, had a squeaky, wimpy voice. So he wrote in his little diary about Ellen, quote, I honestly feel she has strong feelings and as searching as I was for love. She has it from me, and I hope it works between us. Even though the future is uncertain in some respects and certain in others, I feel that Ellen and I could make it work. End quote. First of all, Barf. And I guess the relationship is pretty certain because it's certain that, one way or another, Blannon is going to die in prison. So there's that. On June 25th, Blannon was indicted in Orange County on 33 felony counts, seven each of murder, robbery, and sodomy. And the four deaths that he was being prosecuted for in Orange County were Dennis Fox, Russell Rue, Glenn Barker, and Larry Sharp. The trial in Los Angeles started on October 10th. On October 19th, 1981, the judge was William Keene, who had handled the guess who? The Manson trials of 1970. Jury selection took three weeks, which, in case you don't know, is an inordinate amount of time for jury selection. I don't know what they were doing. There were lots of victims' families there for the trial. Mark Shelton's mom, Steve Wood's mom, Sean King's mom and sister. The prosecution's case was they had the family members testify and they had to identify the pictures of their dead sons, which I imagine was pretty awful. The medical examiners testified about the autopsies and causes of death. Some of the star witnesses were Scott, who testified that he didn't realize that Bonin was the freeway killer until after his arrest, and also that Bonin came to his place probably about 50 times, and would meet young dudes. He also said that he was never violent in any way and was respectful. And he also testified about how Bonin told him about killing Marcus Grabs in quote-unquote self-defense. Another star witness was Jim Monroe, who told about he'd been with Bonin and picked up Steve Wells. And he said they participated in, meaning Bonin and Steve, quote, mutual consensual oral copulation. And then Bonin proceeded with his help to strangle Wells and to dump his body behind a gasoline station in Huntington Beach, quote. Supposedly, Bonin then told him that he was the freeway killer and that Miley was involved also. According to Monroe, he held down Steve's legs while one was strangling him. Greg Miley testified and he basically told of helping to kill James McCabe and Charles Miranda. Dr. Park Dietz, and I think I've mentioned him before, he's a very famous forensic psychiatrist. He said that Bonin's behavior is not consistent with the inability to control impulses. He said that his crimes were, quote, reflective of planning and deliberate actions rather than impulsive behavior, end quote. He said that he saw no evidence of brain damage and concluded that Bonin was a sexual sadist, which I think we knew. Some of the defense experts Were Dr. Jonathan Pincus, who's also an esteemed neurologist, he claimed that Bonin had frontal lobe damage and also possibly something called organic personality disturbance. This is, I guess it's kind of a personality disorder, but it happens following a brain injury in which brain damage causes behavioral abnormalities. Like reduced impulse control, reduced empathy, irritability, aggressive outbursts, and socially inappropriate behavior. Bonin certainly seems to identify with some of those characteristics, but his murders were pretty, for the most part, planned because he would put his, you know, kill kit in his van. And he would head out to certain spots where he knew that there were a lot of youngsters walking around. So that part was planned. But we've also seen on a couple occasions where he'd just be randomly out, maybe on his way home from work or something and catch sight of somebody who, um, I guess you could say tickle his fancy or somebody he felt like victimizing. So the defense did put on a couple of expert witnesses. One of these was Dr. David Foster, who was an expert on the effects of violence and abuse on kids. He testified that Bonin had not had the nurturing and protection needed for proper psychological development, which we knew. He also said that abuse can lead to confusion about the differences between violence and love. Dr. Kathleen Shuttleworth, a psychologist, also testified. She said that Bonin was very interested in helping people. Supposedly, from prison, he was helping the family of a prisoner in New England. I'm not sure how that worked, but she said that he should not get the death penalty because He could help other inmates and, quote, would be a useful member of prison society, end quote. So the mitigating factors that the defense presented was Bonin's repeated abandonment during childhood, the pervasive physical, sexual, and emotional abuse he'd suffered, and evidence of organic brain damage. The defense strategy was mainly to discredit the witnesses, especially Monroe and Miley. On December 8th, while in a holding cell in the courthouse, Bonin was in there with Angelo Buono and somebody named John Stinson, who was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, which is a prison gang and also a convicted murderer. So for whatever reason, Stinson decided that it would be fun to beat the shit out of Bonin while they were in this holding cell. He suffered from a broken nose, two black eyes, and a possible concussion. Bonin was smart enough to know what happens to snitches in prison or jail. I think we all know the saying, snitches get stitches, or in his case, I guess, more stitches. So when he was asked what happened, He didn't say, he just asked if he could be in a different holding cell, and he was treated at County USC Medical Center for his boo-boos. The case went to the jury on January 9th, and they deliberated for less than a day, coming back with convictions on 10 of the murders. The only ones that Bonin was acquitted of were Tommy Lundgren and Sean King. To nobody's surprise, he was sentenced to death, and on March 22nd of 1982, he was transported to death row at San Quentin. In August of 1988, he had his trial in Orange County, during which he was convicted of four murders, and that would be Dennis Fox, Rusty Rue, Glenn Barker, and Larry Sharp. Interestingly, He corresponded with Lavada Gifford, Sean's mom, for a little over a year. And she said that she always wanted him to apologize for killing Sean, which he never did. And most people seem to think that he was sorry, but only for himself that he got caught and not for any of his victims or for his accomplices. In October of 1994... The gas chamber, which was the usual method of execution in California, was deemed cruel and unusual. And interesting fact Bonin would be the first inmate to die by lethal injection in California. Eric never was charged with anything. He pretty much got off scot free. And he died on April 24th, 1989, at the age of 28. I have no idea why he died or any other information on him. Like I said, he's like a ghost. I couldn't even find a picture of him. But he is buried in Forest Lawn Cemetery. This next thing I just find personally really disgusting. And I have a feeling that well also. Apparently, while he was in prison, Bonin took up art, which is fine nothing wrong with that, but his art was, or still is, sold on a website called Supernot.com, and I looked at this website, and it not only has um, mementos of Bonin, but it has a list of all the famous prisoners that have Um, merchandise, either in the form of art, letters, whatever it is that you can imagine you can buy on this website. And just a few of them include Dennis Rader, Ed Gein, Charles Manson, Gerard Schaefer, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, and Ted Bundy. And I'm actually going to do a whole episode on murderabilia So I'm not going to really discuss this too much. But Bonin has a drawing on there. The name of it is Iraq Nightmare in part. And on the back of it, he wrote a message himself. It says, drawings are forever. I hope this drawing brings you pleasure forever. Your loving friend and brother in Christ, Bill Bonin. The date is January 6, 1996. It is 10 by 15 inches, and the going price for this um, piece of art is $5,000. Speaking as somebody who also paints and creates art, it is really fucking ugly. And if you want to see it, I will have the link of that store in my show notes. If you're also interested in having a couple other keepsakes of Bonan, there's a little plastic bag of his hair for sale for $200. There's also a photo of Jim Monroe that can be yours for the low price of $3. There's a letter from Bonan to Monroe, which is typewritten and dated 1994, for $250. A signed Polaroid of Monroe would cost you $185, while a signed Polaroid of both Monroe and Miley would run you $1,500. Another thing on there is a very loosely bound book. It looks more like a, a notebook. It's titled A Collection of Short Stories by Bill Bonin, a Death Row Prisoner, and That can be yours at the bargain price of $950. Are you disgusted yet? Onan also supposedly wrote a book while he was on death row. And I say supposedly because I cannot find it anywhere. Supposedly, he worked with this journalist. And this journalist is a real person. She does exist. Her name is Alexis Skriloff. She has a LinkedIn page. And it lists her as a writer slash journalist. But the book is called Doing Time, Stories from the Mind of a Death Row Prisoner. The publishing date on it is 1991. It's weird because it's listed on Goodreads and Google Books, but there's no other information. There's no pictures. There's no, are there any copies left? How would you get one? It's really weird. But... This Alexis referred to Bonin as, quote, a gifted artist and writer. And she said, quote, he has a very basic sense of caring for human beings. I know that's completely the opposite of what everyone says, end quote, which leads me to think that she is either delusional or has a strange definition of a caring person. So where is everybody else? Monroe is still in Mule Creek Prison, which is near Sacramento. He last had a parole hearing in 2014, at which he was denied parole, and he doesn't have another one until 2029. Remember David McVicker, the rape victim? He went to all of the parole hearings for both Monroe and Miley, and supposedly... Monroe somehow threatened David McVicker, and supposedly that's the reason or one of the big reasons why he has not been paroled yet. A psychologist who interviewed Monroe said that she thinks he wants to finish Bonin's work. I personally, in my own personal opinion, I'm having kind of a hard time believing that. Greg Miley was also housed in Mule Creek, and on May 24th, of 2016, when he was 54, he was assaulted by another inmate in the prison yard. He was treated at the prison's medical facility and taken back to his cell. 90 minutes later, he lost consciousness and was then taken to a real hospital. He died two days later. The death was being investigated as a homicide, but I couldn't find any information on who killed him or why? And interestingly, this happened days after somebody official inspected the prison and found that it provided poor medical care to its inmates. So that's four out of the six of them who are dead already. Only Pew and Monroe are still alive. On February 22nd, 1996, Bonan, who was now 49 on the eve of his execution, was moved to a cell that they called the Death Watch. cell. outside in the yard of San Quentin, there were a whole bunch of people. Half of them were protesting the death penalty. The other half was rooting for, I guess would be the word, for the execution. And there were about 150 cops there just to keep order. Bonin did a radio interview during which he made the famous quote, quote, I would suggest that when a person has a thought of doing anything serious against the law, that before they did that, they should go to a quiet place and think about it seriously, end quote. And I think we know that that doesn't sound like something that would work. Regarding the victims' families, he said, quote, they feel that my death will bring closure, but that's not the case. They're going to find out, end quote. For his last meal, I'm sure everybody wants to know this because everybody always likes to know what people had for their last meals. He had two pepperoni and sausage pizzas, three pints of coffee-flavored ice cream, gross, and a six-pack of Coke. And while he ate all this, he watched Jeopardy! on TV. At 11.30 p.m., he was visited by a Catholic chaplain and the warden, and he told the warden, quote, The death penalty is not an answer to the problems at hand. I feel it sends the wrong message to the young people, end quote. He was taken to the execution chamber just before midnight and given an IV with valium, pancuronium bromide, and potassium chloride. Remember, this was one of the very first lethal injections ever. I know that nowadays they have replaced the Valium with something else. I think it's also a kind of sedative, but it took him three minutes to die. And the room that you could view the execution from, there were 80 people in there and they supposedly were sitting on kind of like bleacher type seats, if, if you can picture this. There were some... Victims, family members there, like Troy Kendrick, who was Darren's brother. He was 33 now. And he cried as he witnessed Vaughn and die. Somebody asked him if he felt any better. And he said, quote, I feel like I can get on with my life now, unquote. David McVicker was there. And he said that Vaughn was just laying there with his eyes closed. And all of a sudden, his cheeks bulged and his face turned purple. Strangely, it said that the people who witnessed this were disappointed. Like they wanted to see, I don't know what they wanted to see actually. I guess something more dramatic or bloody, or I think maybe they were disappointed that he literally just laid there and seemed to just fall asleep. None of Bonnet's family members came to see the execution or, strangely, even to claim his remains. So what they did was cremate him in a private ceremony and somebody scattered his ashes in the ocean. So next week will be part seven and the last part of this blockbuster, which is really turning out to be quite a blockbuster. We're going to talk about the psychology of Bonin and all of his little asshole friends and just some general sociological theories that explain how this could have happened. And before we go, let's hear from Dave and Garrett of Criminal AF and I will see yous hopefully in a couple days cuz this last episode shouldn't be that long. Really, for real. I I mean that for real. Okay. Class dismissed. Are you a true crime fanatic? Do you want to know all the morbid details? Do you think talking about serial killers is fun? If you answered yes, then you're in the right place and have finally found your crew. Join hosts Dave Jari and Garrett Corder from Criminal AF every Monday to discuss some of the most heinous crimes imaginable while having fun doing it. Dave and Garrett bring a unique and unfiltered approach to their storytelling That will have you shocked beyond belief one minute and laughing out of your seat the next. This is not your grandma's true crime podcast. While we understand that Criminal AF is not for everyone, we ask that you at least give it a listen. And if it's not for you, hey, thanks for checking it out. See ya. But if it is, welcome to the debauchery.